Good evening. evening. And don't pass out. Yes, I'm wearing a jacket. It's near Christmas and I don't get to wear it that often. So, And once September comes, you're not supposed to wear white. That's the law. I expect state troopers to show up if I ever wore it after September except for Christmas. So, Let's talk for a while tonight about cultivating faithfulness. If you'll look at the the 37th Psalm with me. And this is a fairly long psalm. We won't read the whole thing. We're just going to read some of the first of it. But you'll get the flavor of it. How many of you have ever been to Germany? Okay, I see a bunch of hands, more than I expected actually. Maybe when you were there, you got to take part in what they call a hog fest. A lot of German towns would take a big hog And in the center of town, they would build a fire and they'd have that big hog on a spit and roast him. And you come in whenever you come in in the morning and you buy a ticket. And later on, when they declare the hog is ready to eat, you bring your ticket and the line is long and you get a piece of that hog. You don't get the whole hog. You just get a piece of it. But with that piece, you know what the whole hog tastes like. This is just a piece of what this text is tasting like. And there's a lot of the idea that we'll see here, we'll talk about those, it just permeates through Scripture, this idea of cultivating faithfulness. You'll see what I'm talking about as we read some of the first part. So I know you're you're thinking, Marty, just read it and quit talking about it, just read it. So let's read it. Psalm 37, verse 1, Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. There's the the line for the title of this lesson. Then he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to him, to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? Trust also in him and he will do it. Hmm. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked, will, uh, wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. We'll stop there for now. Think about David's life. Did he have any enemies? He had a few, didn't he? Right there among his own family. Remember when he came out, his his father sent him. His father, Jesse, said, here, take these things and you go visit your brothers. See how things are going in the army or your brothers are enlisted. And he gets there, starts asking questions about what's going on. Of course, it's in the Valley of Elah where Goliath is coming out. And his brothers start to... uh, castigate him, I guess that's the word we would use, demean him, diminish him, you dumb little brother. Of course, that's the way brothers are. 
What are you doing here? Why aren't you out there with those few sheep you watch over? So he, he had that in his family. And then, of course, as soon as he was anointed to become king, he became Saul's great enemy. And Saul tried on multiple occasions to kill him. Afterwards, he, he had a lot of enemies that he fought against. And his own son lifted up his hand against him and tried to take the kingdom away and was successful for a while. So he had plenty of enemies. And so David was well qualified to say what he's saying here. And he wrote this down for us, for our posterity. The Holy Spirit of God said, put that in writing. My people need to hear this. What you've learned, they need to learn. Don't worry about evildoers. What's going to happen with evildoers? As we would say it in our vernacular, they're going to get theirs. They'll get their comeuppance. You can't escape the judgment of God. That's basically what David is saying. So don't waste your time. Don't give your attention to worrying about what's going to happen with evildoers. God will take care of the evildoers. You don't have to fret over that at all. As a matter of fact, did you notice he said, if that's what you think about, that's only going to lead to evil. So don't worry about evil people. God will take care of evil people. But here's what you do. While you're not worrying about evil people, trust. Trust in the Lord. What does that mean? Trust in the Lord. When God says something, is there the slightest inclination in you to ever not do it? What's the most challenging passage you can think of out of the scriptures? What does God teach us to do that you have a really hard time facing up to and doing it? Is it maybe that one text where he says, if somebody slaps you on a cheek, what do you do? You smack the fire out of him because that's a Christian thing. No, that's, that's not what he said. He said, you turn the other cheek. In other words, you don't offer resistance to evil. Somebody strikes you, somebody insults you with a slap, you just let him slap the other cheek. Turn the other one to him. You don't respond with anger and violence. By the way, in that context, what is that fellow? Oh, he's one of these evil guys. Somebody slaps you unjustly. He's one of these evil guys. And David says he will get his. God will make sure of it. You don't have to worry about it. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Somebody compels you to go a mile like the Roman soldiers could do to Jewish citizens in Jesus' day. What did Jesus say? He said, he's a dirty, stinking Gentile. You don't have to do anything he wants you to do, right? No. He compels you to go a mile. You go a mile. When God says, trust him. He's not just talking about the things we agree with. He's especially talking about things we struggle with. Trust me, just do it. That's what he says. In all my years of doing my best to practice Christianity, I've never once regretted doing what God said to do. Now don't ask me about the times I've not done it and regretted it. But I know about the times, I know about those times too. Then he says, this is verse 3, dwell in the land. What do you think of when you think of the word dwell? Dwell. You're staying there. You're, you're not just at some place. You're there to stay. You've got this idea of, of permanency. You're going you're to live there. You're not, a, you're not a spiritual nomad going from one place to the next. 
Trust in the Lord. Dwell in the land. And then he says, cultivate faithfulness. Now, we're familiar with faithfulness. Uh, put faithfulness in a context that it makes sense to you. My, my favorite one is marriage. What does it mean to be faithful in a marriage? Now, somebody might say, oh, it just means you don't cheat on your spouse. That's the lowest level of faithfulness there is. I mean, that's, that's any, anything below that, you're unfaithful. That's where you start, not cheating. What does faithfulness really mean? What kind of things are normally included in a wedding vow? Love, honor, and obey. Wait, who does the obeying? We'll talk about that later. All kinds of wonderful things are included in wedding vows because at that point you are enamored with the other person and you stand up there and you're willing to say anything just so you can have them for the rest of your life. And then you get them. And God says, you stay faithful. That doesn't just mean no running around. That means you commit yourself to them because that, that's what he's going to say in the next line. Commit your way to the Lord. You're faithful to a wife. You're faithful to a husband. You commit yourself to that husband. And here's another thing. You don't just commit yourself to the husband or the wife. You commit yourself to the relationship. Because you know what that husband or wife is going to do? They're going to make you so mad. Can I say this in the pulpit? You'll spit. I said it. I didn't wait for you to answer. I just said it. But they'll do it. They'll make you that angry because I've done it. But if you commit to the relationship, it doesn't matter what they do. Because you're committed. Now, here's, here's the wonderful thing about this. We as individuals, we marry people who are just as sinful as we are. They're just as messed up as we are. But when you tie on with God, you're tying on with somebody who is absolutely perfect, who has no expectations that are not fair or that are not good for you, who has no requirements of you other than you, you do the very thing that's best for you. So, so this is a step up from interpersonal human relationships, no matter how good they might be. When you tie on with God and he says faithfulness to him, he's talking about faithfulness there's nothing easier in the world than to be faithful to God if you think about it. Because you know who he is. And you know what he is. And he deserves every ounce of faithfulness that's within you. Now, just here's a little side note. If you look at Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. I found this passage interesting. Anytime Jesus says something where he, he kind of pulls something out as special, that's special. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You know what those were? Those were little herbs, small plants, little herbs, mint and dill and cumin. It's interesting, too, walking around over in, uh, in the Middle East and in, uh, in Greece and in Italy, you see window boxes, and in some of those window boxes, people are growing herbs. Because you don't need a whole lot of ground to grow herbs. And Jesus is talking about these small plants, these herbs that people would use in cooking. And he says, you tithe those. You take a tenth of your mint, you take a tenth of your cumin, you take a tenth of your dill, and you, you offer that to the Lord. 
But then you neglect the weightier provisions of the law. What are the weightier provisions of the law? Look what he says. Justice, mercy, and what's the next one? Faithfulness. When Jesus wants to talk about heavy things in the law, weighty things of the law, when he wants to talk about the meat, as another New Testament writer would put it, he talks about faithfulness. And David is saying, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Now, if somebody were to say to you, I I, I had a great afternoon, I went home and cultivated some peppers. Can you do that? What do you mean? The only way to cultivate something is over time. You can't do it in just a little bit. What's the first thing you do? Well, you got to prepare some ground. You you either start with seed or you start with a plant that somebody else has grown from seed. And then, if you're me, you find a way to kill it because I can't keep anything alive. And, And boy, I don't want to talk about my yard, but there's some weeds growing in my yard that, well, anyway, that's another story. But when you cultivate something, David's talking about doing something deliberately over time to to not just keep it alive, but to grow a crop of it. That's what you want. You want a crop of it. And he's talking about a crop of faithfulness. That's the idea. That's the imagery that, that comes across here with this. So trust in the Lord. Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. How do you do that? How do you delight yourself in the Lord? It's around Christmas time. Um, several years ago, I, I had kind of a wonderful awakening. I was thinking about 22 rifles, and boy, it'd be nice to have a new 22 rifle. And I was looking at the pictures and finding the ones I thought, oh, that'd be a good one right there. Well, then I realized, you know what? I've got two really nice 22 rifles I haven't shot in years. Maybe I'll take them out and shoot them. I already had what I was delighted in, and I did that, and it was great. I didn't need a new one. Why? Because I had two, and they were good ones. So when David says, delight yourself in the Lord, he says, you take a look around, and you find out what there is that you've already got in God that's worth delighting yourself in. What do you have in God that's worth delighting yourself in? What what comfort do you have? What peace do you have? What do you enjoy because of your relationship with God that maybe through the years you've kind of let slip? You just don't think about it. Cultivate faithfulness. Do something deliberate to bring that faithfulness to God back up. That staying with him and serving him and being under his tutelage, his disciple. Do something deliberately that cultivates that. And one of those things is finding things in God in which you can delight. He says, when you delight yourself in the Lord, he's going to give you the desires of your heart. Do you even know what the desires of your heart are? Boy, this is is the time you ask your kids, what do you want for Christmas? They've got a list. And it's probably not complete. You know why it's not complete? Because there might be something else they haven't thought of yet. And if you're thinking about the desires of your heart, there's probably something you haven't thought of yet that God knows this will be perfect for you. And what you're thinking isn't even going to make you happy. But what I can have, what I can give for you, what I can, what I can do for you. And I'm talking about stuff. I'm talking about what comes from a relationship with him that can give you such delight. 
That's a wonderful concept, isn't it? Delight. Commit your way to the Lord. That's a bad word these days. People are afraid of commitment. I wonder why that is. It's even true in a restaurant. How many times have you gone to a restaurant and you pull up the menu and you look and you go, oh, man, I can... Oh, hamburger sounds... I haven't had a real restaurant hamburger. I get Brahms hamburgers. They're great, but, man, a restaurant hamburger. Oh, wouldn't it? Oh, but there's steaks over there, man. But, you know, a dry steak is good, but what about that country fried steak with gravy and mashed potatoes? Oh, well, my doctor said I should stay away from that stuff. Maybe I should have salmon. You know, I really like salmon. And before you know it, you're looking at the whole menu and you don't know what to order. And you know what happens invariably. You finally decide, oh, I'll just get that. And as soon as you order it, you know, oh, I really want that over there. And then while you're waiting on your food, what happens? Waiter comes by with somebody else's food. And you're looking going, I should have got that. Am I the only one? Too many choices. Too many choices. And too many choices means we're never going to be happy. Because no matter what you choose, you're always going to think, oh, there could have been something better. Why do couples not get married? They're not willing to commit because, you know, if I marry this person, somebody better might come along later. You know what that says to the other person? (laughs) That says, well, I'd marry you, but I'm pretty sure I can find somebody better. (laughs) So I'm not going to do that right now. I'm just going to wait. David says, commit yourself. Be willing to commit yourself. Have enough moral fiber to commit yourself to the Lord. Trust in him, he says again, and he will do it. He'll bring forth your righteousness as a light and your judgment as the noonday. And then he says in verse 7, what does he say in verse 7? It says, rest in the Lord. How can you do that in 2023? We are so busy. There's so much going on. And you think about David's life. When did David have time to say, rest in the Lord? And yet that's what he says. Rest in the Lord. And what's the next word? Wait. Wait. Wait, wait, how? It's right there in black and white. New American Standard, anyway, says wait patiently. What does it mean to wait patiently? You know what it means to wait. You spend time in expectation of something that's coming. But to wait patiently means you spend that time with a good attitude. You're not angry about it. You're not upset. You don't feel like you're being cheated. All you have to do to feel like you're being put upon is to, to go to any fast food restaurant and go to the, we go to the speaker first of all. And say, I'm out for a I'm out for a Yeah? Can I order? Well, you make your order, you get through that mess, and then you get up to the window. What if it's, what if it's not right there? Man, it's a fast food place. And we start to expect everything in our life is supposed to be like this. Anybody not have a microwave in their house? What are microwaves for? Microwaves are to speed things up. Everything's got to be faster and bigger and better. And David says, wait and wait patiently. 
That's what David says. The Holy Spirit said, write it down. Don't worry about the rest of the world. Don't worry about what's going on. So you think about these things that he says. Just, you just pull out these, these six ideas. Number one, trust. He's talked about trust. Dwell. Dwell has the idea of you're, you're there long term. You're not passing through. Delight. You do it intentionally. You find the good. You delight yourself in that. You commit. You stay there. Remember what Jesus said? Matthew chapter 14. I read this with people who are wanting to obey the gospel. He talks about that guy who went out to build a tower. And what did Jesus say about that? You go to build a tower and you don't figure up first to see if you've got enough to build a tower. Then you're only going to get so far and you're going to have to quit. What's he talking about? He's saying, if you want to follow me, it's everything or nothing. It's all or nothing. That rich young ruler that John was talking about this morning. What did Jesus tell him? Sell everything you've got and come follow me. Why did Jesus tell him that and not everybody else? Told him that, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because that was his holdup, his stuff. So you want to commit to me? You want to trust me? Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. We'll see if you trust me. Jesus wasn't trying to push him away. He wasn't trying to hurt him. Jesus loved him, the text said. But he knew that's what that young man needed. Sometimes the lessons are hard. But we have to trust. We have to commit ourselves. We have to find a way to commit. And once we've committed, rest in that commitment. Don't worry about it. Don't fret over it. Rest in that commitment and wait and wait patiently. Uh, there's a text in, in Jeremiah. This, David wrote this about 1000 B.C. Jeremiah was talking to the exiles... This would be about 400 years later, 400 years or so after David. And you are probably familiar with what happened. God got so upset with Judah, the southern kingdom. They were so lost in in idolatry, so lost in immorality. They were such horrible abuse of one another and the law. And well, anything that was wrong, they were doing it. And so God gave them over to the Babylonians. But it wasn't the end. Remember the promise he made? He said, 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. So this is, this is a letter that God gave Jeremiah to send to the exiles who'd been carried into Babylonian captivity. Now, this, we're going to read this letter here in Jeremiah chapter 29. I don't know if I told you chapter Jeremiah 29. You hear part of this often, and I'm glad we hear part of it often. Sometimes you'll hear somebody quote a scripture and somebody else, oh, yeah, well, they're taking that out of context. Well, all right. You figure out the context for yourself, but they're, they're talking about Scripture. That's good. It's good when people talk about the Bible. You figure out what's in or out of context yourself when you make the application. But, but this is a letter that God sends through Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. Imagine if you're in Babylon, how would you feel about God and yourself and your condition and your situation? Would you be thinking, boy, God's really taking care of us? Probably not. You'd probably be thinking, oh, we are terribly forsaken. There's no going back now. We're evil people. Remember what Isaiah said when he found himself in that vision in the throne room of God? What's the first thing Isaiah said? Woe is me, for I am a what? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell where? In the midst of a people of unclean lips. And God took care of that. 
Well, here's Jeremiah writing this letter to the exiles. This is what he tells them to do. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Now, I don't know what mental image you've had of the exiles. I used to think, well, they just carried them off in chains and they were slaves and they were horribly abused and treated. There were some that that happened to. But for the most part, they just took people who might add to their culture, their society. That, that's who was taken captive. That's why they take the trouble to take those people all the way back to their land. And these people would find jobs. They would be given responsibilities, especially those who were discovered to have talents. Remember uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they became four of the most highest officials in Babylon. And so that's what was happening with these people. And God is telling them, you go back to Babylon You build houses. You marry off your sons and get them good wives. And you marry off your daughters, get them good husbands. You keep increasing in number. Do not decrease. Then he says in verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. Now that's interesting. God is saying, you you pray for the city that I've sent you to. Well, who are we going to pray to? You're going to pray to me. You pray to me. And you ask me for the welfare of the city. How does that make sense? You know how it makes sense. What do we teach our little ones? We teach them to go through the the rote process of good behavior because they need to learn it. You want something? You ask me. Well, if I ask you, don't you already know I want it? Well, yeah, but I want you to ask. I want you to learn to ask. And God is saying to these exiles, you ask me for the welfare of the city you're in. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. and Do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but I have sent you this letter from my prophet Jeremiah. That's why you're reading this. I just added that. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Wow! Isn't that fantastic? This is to the exiles. This is to the people who've been so evil that God sent them off into another nation. And he says, now that you're there where I have sent you in exile, build houses, start a family, get yourself a business, plant some vineyards. He'll say that in another place, plant these crops. You you live in the land because in 70 years I'm bringing you back. Now think about that. Let's say you've been taken into exile and you're 20 years old. You're ready to start a family. And God says, 70 years I'm bringing you back. And you'll say, I'm going to be what? You'll be either too old or you'll be dead. So what do you care? What do you care? None of this is just about me. None of this is just about you. 
This is for the glory of God for one thing, but it's for the good of the world for another. What did Jesus say to those who were listening to him? Preach that Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the lights of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are a city on a hill that people can see from a distance and know that's the place I need to get to for safety and security, for food, for water. All the things you would need back in those days you'd find in a town. And if you're traveling and you see a city far away on a hill, you know that's where we need to get to before it gets dark. That's the place. That's what Christians are in this world, according to Jesus. And David was talking about it 3,000 years ago. Trust in the Lord. Cultivate faithfulness. Do these things because it's not just for you. There's a whole world living in darkness that needs the example that we can set. The lessons that we can teach to see them so they can follow us. And I'm going to bring this lesson to a close because it's hot in here. We'll go out, stand on the porch and cool off after this. But I don't know where you are in, in your cultivation of faithfulness. Perhaps, perhaps you've done well and perhaps you've falter a little along the way, but we're going to stand up and sing a song of invitation and encouragement. And if you've never committed yourself to the Lord, if you've never decided to dwell in the kingdom, if you've never put Christ on in baptism, you're still outside and you need to come inside. We want to help you with that. But if you just need prayers, if you need encouragement, you need to talk to somebody about anything, here we are. We're inviting you with this song to come and let us know.